world. Borealis. Paradigm Expansion. Greetings from the north and welcome to a new forum Borealis on the lost age of mankind. Our guest today is the forbidden archaeologist Michael Anthony Cremo, who has accumulated a monumental amount of evidence for extreme human antiquity, proving that the age of our human race is far older than what mainstream textbooks wants us to believe. His findings are incredibly important in order to uncover the past ages of human civilization. Cremo is a research associate in history of archaeology and an honorary doctor and member of several worldwide academic congresses, associations and societies where he has published and got peer-reviewed many papers on the extreme human antiquity. Fluently in several languages, he has meticulously researched and collected censored and suppressed discoveries all over the world from the beginning of anthropology until today, cross-disciplinary and cultural boundaries, and travelled all over the globe for his research and lecturing at both mainstream and alternative science gatherings. He has written several books on the topic and is featured in innumerable documentaries and media appearances and journals, TV, radio and film with his typical sober and sincere presentations. Today he joins us to discuss the hard evidence contributing to our series on the antediluvian civilizations. Welcome, Michael. It's an honor to have you with us. It's good to be with you, Al, and all your listeners. Well, the title of today's conversation is The Lost Age of Mankind. And indeed, what is lost tends to sink into the domain of mythology. Uh, but today we shall see what can be restored. Speaking of mythology, let me just start by pitching this thing. You are going to have a lecture at something called the Mythology Festival in Norway. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. That's coming up on July 31st in the Lundarhedni Natur Park, which I think is near Bergen yeah. in Norway. And the festival that I'm taking part in and will be speaking at goes through July 31st through August 2nd. But my talk on my book, Forbidden Archaeology, will be the evening of the 31st of July, which I believe is a Friday. And the topic of your lecture? It will be about my book, Forbidden Archaeology, which deals with archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. Mm. And the way that it ties in with mythology is that my thinking on this question of human origins and human antiquity is inspired and informed by my studies in the ancient Sanskrit writings of 
India which speak of a very ancient human presence mm -hmm. on earth going back many millions of years. So when I first encountered these histories and these ancient writings, I wondered, should this be taken as simply a form of mythology, or is there perhaps some factual evidence to support what these ancient writings are saying about human history. Right. So that's what got me looking into the history of archaeology. Right. Uh, I, when we come back in part two, I want us to delve more into the mythology aspects. Now for part one, I'd like us to explore, you know, the facts themselves, what's there. But uh, first, I must say, whoever booked you for the mythology festival is a genius because they are going to send you to one of the most beautiful places on Earth. <laughs> well, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that. I've never been to Norway, so I'm, I'm very eager to see it. Well, let me tell you, Michael, that Norway uh, has a very diverse nature. You can see it already on the map, right? It's very uh, elongated up there through the coast. And, and they're so different. Uh, nature landscapes uh, depending on what part of the country you're in and I guess it also boils down a little to your taste but where you're going at this time of year it's like the Garden of Eden okay well, <laughs> you can really look forward to it yeah the, the, the organizer didn't have to work very hard to convince me to come yeah you know. But you, you have been in, at least in Scandinavia, I, I read. Yes, I, I have been to different uh, countries in Scandinavia. I've been to Denmark before. Mm. I've been to Finland. I've been to Sweden. I've been to Iceland. Wow. Is only us left. <laughs> yes. The best, saving the best yes. for last. Okay. I must admit I'm a little biased because I am from that general area. But uh, but it is like generally accepted that you I mean this is the heart of the fjords and all that so but okay I, I won't bore uh, our American segment of listeners with this anymore <laughs> to get to work your the first book I acquired by you was the book you just mentioned or actually it was the abbreviated version called um, the hidden history of the human race exactly and uh, you know both the uh, that and, and the original one, the Forbidden Archaeology, was also written with, with a co-author, Dr. Thompson? Yes, Dr. Richard Thompson. Yeah. And uh, so today uh, we will have that book as one of the main sources. You, of course, our audience will find links to your Amazon page and your own page and all that, as with all our guests, at our page. But uh, we will also touch, I guess, upon work you've done in a couple of other books you've done, like Forbidden Archaeologist and My Science, My Religion. Now, one thing is hard science, you know, with its many verifiable and objective finds. But I must say, uh, my attitude to the field of archaeology, anthropology, and in particular, Egyptology, is that it's hopelessly corrupted 
permeated with what I would call religiosity, meaning faith-based dogmas. And uh, people in general, I don't think, understands this. So um, I think we need to, to kind of look upon the hard evidence what actually all, all this is about. So my first question would be, what is the mainstream explanation for the human origin? And how did your evidence, your finds... Uh, relate to that today most archaeologists and most scientists in general believe that human beings like us anatomically modern homo sapiens came into existence less than 200,000 years ago they would say before that time there were no human beings like us on Earth, and they would say there were only more primitive ape-like human ancestors, and they have different names for these ancestors. They call them Neanderthals, Homo erectus, going even further back, uh, Australopithecus, and beings like that. So, mostly today they believe that humans like us came into existence less than 200 thousand years ago. So when I looked into the history of archaeology, I found something quite interesting. Now, if you look in today's textbooks, you will only see the discoveries that go along with the idea that I just explained to you, namely that humans like us came into existence less than 200,000 years ago. And you would think, well, in these textbooks, they're giving all the evidence, and all the evidence supports their idea, so their idea must be true. Mm. But I'm, you could say, a person who questions things, so I decided to look beyond the textbooks. I decided to look into the original scientific reports by archaeologists, geologists, paleontologists, and other scientists who are, have been digging into the earth to see what their original reports say. You see, I divide the scientific literature into two segments, mm -hmm. the primary scientific literature and the secondary scientific literature. Right. The, sec the primary scientific literature is original reports published by scientists in their professional scientific journals, and the secondary literature is literature that's based on the primary literature, for example, textbooks, mm. textbooks that you study in school and university would be an example of a secondary scientific literature. So if you look... Sorry, could I just interject? Yes, go ahead, Al. Because most people aren't, you know, familiar with scientific literature. So uh, is it so that the first one is usually published and distributed within scientific circles? 
Yes, mm. that is that is true. The prof- as I said, the professional scientific literature. So it doesn't reach the general populace unless some popular scientific magazine or something brings it further out. Right. Uh-huh. And 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 even then, uh, here we're just talking about what you would see say, for example, on a television program or in a popular scientific magazine, might mention current reports. But sometimes you have to look into the whole history Mm. of a discipline to get a real picture of what's actually going on. Say, in, in today's textbooks, you'll find discoveries that were made in the 19th century or the early 20th century and they support the now dominant idea that humans like us appeared on earth less than 200,000 years ago and you might think okay they're giving a complete survey of all the facts and all the facts support their idea. Therefore, their idea that humans like us appeared less than 200,000 years ago is true. It's Mm. the factual truth. Mm. But what I did is I looked into the whole history of archaeology by going through the original scientific reports, say from around the time of Darwin in the mid-19th century Mm. up to the present and when I and I didn't just look at the reports in the English language I have a reading knowledge of several of the major European languages Mm. so I looked in many different languages and when I looked at these original scientific reports, I found many cases of archaeologists and other earth scientists reporting discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints, in some cases many millions of years old, going much further back in time than the current theory allows. So when you take all of this evidence into consideration, you come up with a completely different picture Mm. of human origins and antiquity. Uh, You find, yes, in the distant past, there were various kinds of ape men that go under different names like Neanderthal and Homo erectus and Homo habilis and so on. But there were also human beings like us coexisting with them at the same time. So that the real picture, if you look at all of the evidence, is one of coexistence rather than evolution. Yeah, right. A good thing about well, I don't, I haven't read uh, the Forbidden Archaeology book, but I, uh, the Hidden History book. What you do there is that you divide it into two parts, where the first part is called Anomalous Evidence, 
And the second is called accepted evidence. <laughs> just just the notion of accepted and unaccepted evidence. I mean, okay, unaccepted evidence should be evidence which is not evidence. <laughs> so just to have like the notion of accepted and, and unaccepted based upon our paradigm, that's so unscientific. But it's a good thing you divide it like this uh, because then it will become uh, clearer, I think, to to the general populace that there actually is... Uh, it's not just to talk about, you know, some fragments here and there. But it's a huge volume of what we could then call anomalous evidence. So I wonder, have you have you any survey of the total volume of findings which are anomalous? Well, of course, it's always changing because there are always new discoveries. But in general... Yes, it just increases, right? Yes, yeah. in general, the... <clears throat> I think you stated it pretty accurately. Sometimes people might think, well, there may be one or two or some very few cases of anomalous evidence, but that's not the case. There are actually hundreds of these cases. Mm. So it's an equivalent amount of evidence. Really... Uh, if you look at the totality of evidence for the accepted mainstream picture of human origins, you'll find they have a lot of evidence for the past few thousand years. But as you start going further and further back in time, the evidence gets sparser and sparser. Yeah. And if you go back to the very early periods, there's not a whole lot of evidence. That's why a scientist can become famous all over the world for discovering just a tiny fragment hmm. of a bone of some so-called human ancestor. And so when we're talking about the evidence for evolution, some ape men evolving into human beings. Really, there's not so much evidence of that kind. I heard that you could get all the official findings confirming that into, it can be created into a chest, all the official finds supporting the standard evolution theory. Is this true, do you know? Uh, yeah, sometimes other scientists have put it in a different way. They would say you could spread it all out on a couple of billiard tables. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty clear picture, isn't it? Yeah. And what about the anomalous findings? Would it be one billiard table or, or even two? <laughs> well, or more? At, least an, at least an equivalent amount. Wow. Uh, so there, there's actually quite a bit of it. If, if you look at the original book, Forbidden Archaeology, I know you said you, you've just seen the abridged version, The Hidden History. Yeah, it's, it's in my lap as we speak. Yeah. But you know, the original book is about 900 pages long. Now, the shorter book has all the same cases, just explained in a, in a, in a simpler, shorter way. But that original book is it's not a uh, even myself when i first started doing 
this research into the history of archaeology many years ago, I thought, I'm going to look into the original scientific literature on this question, and maybe I'll find a few interesting discoveries. Perhaps I'll do eight weeks of research, (laughs) and I'll find a few things, and I'll write a short article about it, and then I'll go on to something else, to some other topic. (laughs) But as I started digging into the archives, into the original scientific reports of the past couple of centuries Mm. and many different languages, I began to find not just a few reports, because one report would lead to another. In other words, you would find, I would find a report by some European scientists that, for example, stone tools had been found in layers of rock 20 million years old. Mm. And then there'd be a little footnote. And some other scientists has reported a similar thing from France. So then I'd track down that document, which would lead me to other documents, which would lead me to still other documents. So the eight weeks of research turned into eight months, and then the eight <laughs> months turned into eight years. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, enough to fill up a 900-page book. So right. we're not talking about just a few anomalous cases. There's a significant number of them, and if we take all of them into account, we get a different picture of human origins and antiquity. Indeed, I, I would argue that uh, you can no longer call it anomalous, because in order for something to be... Anomalous, it has to be like a little, in in Norwegian we have a saying, it's the exception that confirms the rule. Yeah. But uh, here we have like, uh, here we have like such a huge omission that if this happened in mathematics or in physics or in some kind of hard science, it would completely collapse the whole uh, field. Yeah. And still they get away with it. Let me ask you a very important follow-up question to this point, because this also I think people need to know. And that is, when we now talk about the total volumes of anomalies, uh, we're actually just talking about what has passed into, how should I say, to to be verified. Because uh, as you will explain to us now, there's a process where lots are lost you know, from the findings and until we can know about it. In different ways, stored away in cellars, omitted, etc. Could you say a little about the difficulty of getting anomalous finds out there? Uh, Yes, I can, Al. Of course, I I want to agree with something you said a, a moment ago about the nature of anomalous evidence. It's just anomalous in terms of a particular theory or paradigm. Uh, if you change your theory to accommodate the evidence, then it's no, no longer anomalous. Mm. But in terms of the now dominant ideas in the scientific world, the kind of evidence that I'm talking about is considered anomalous in relationship to those current mainstream ideas. But uh, to get back to the principal question that you asked, there are a lot of ways in which we are not getting the complete picture 
of what the evidence actually is. For one thing, geological processes destroy a lot of evidence. Over time, there are earthquakes, there are earth movements, there are geological processes by which different layers of the earth are destroyed, and that means whatever's contained within them is also destroyed. So uh, that process is ongoing. And, you know, geologists have, have stated that over 90% of the sedimentary layers that have ever been laid down in the history of the earth are no longer with us. They've been destroyed. Hmm. over the long periods of geological time. So that means, say, for example, if you had uh, a thousand-page book, uh, you might say that 90% of the pages are are missing at this point. So that's one thing to consider. Hmm. And then another thing to consider is there's actually quite a bit of sedimentary layers. That's where you would find fossils. Mm. And we haven't really looked at all of them. I mean, the Earth is a huge place. It's a very big place. And we have not dug into all the layers of the Earth to see what's really there. So that's another limitation on our ability to understand what the totality of evidence might actually be. Mm. Another problem is this, what I call, process of knowledge filtration. Mm. If we look at the evidence that has been discovered, we see that not all of it is mentioned in today's textbooks. It gets filtered out. You know, evidence that supports the dominant theory passes through the knowledge filter very easily, and therefore it's included in scientific discussion, textbooks, and things like that. Hmm. But evidence that radically contradicts a dominant idea in the scientific world tends to be filtered out. It's not talked about. It's not written about. It's simply ignored, forgot, in some cases actively suppressed. So what I've tried to do in my work is give people as complete a picture as possible of what the entire body of relevant evidence is. And I will leave it up to my readers to make up their own minds about this evidence, but at least they should be informed about it. Mm -hmm. And then they can make their own decisions about it, and I respect the decisions that people make. But I would say... If we're going to be talking about a particular question or problem, we should first of all try to make sure we've got the complete set of facts, of relevant facts, upon which to base our decisions. Right. So so that's what I've tried to contribute to this whole discussion. And even for my critics, what I would say is, Even if at some point in time, some category of evidence seems to be quite useless or not very valuable or perhaps mistaken, 
that may change in the light of future discoveries. Something that didn't make sense at one point in time might make sense in the future mm. if you remain aware of that evidence. So I think the entire body of evidence related to this question of human origins should remain in the minds of people so that they can, in the light of perhaps future discoveries, make use of this evidence. Yes, but this this requires an actual scientific attitude. And the problem with contemporary academia, I would argue, is that it's so infused with dogmatism and paradigm dictating uh, decisions that uh, real the real scientific method may be lost. And, and in fact, we would want you back just for a program on this because we're going to have a series where we examine i think we'll call this series liberating science inspired there a little by rupert Sheldrake. but uh, i think this is such a huge topic that that uh, we would be very happy if you would come on and discuss that with us at a future time okay but back to the topic at hand then you're saying then that in fact from what you're saying it's natural to assume that the older the evidence is the worse conditions it is to find it which kind of will be a biased confirmation for those who thinks that humankind is just 200,000 years old because it will be natural that we find much more evidence for younger remnants than than the older ones and despite this there's still so much evidence like you just said that uh, if if uh, anthropology ever want to enter into the definition of science they need to follow the evidence they cannot keep suppressing and many think this is a conspiracy this is like an organized attempt to a sinister way to keep us in the darkness. What would be your take in brief, because we're getting back to this in a future program, but it, we need to address it here too. What would you explain this omission and ignorance with? Well, the scientists that are engaged in what I call this knowledge filtering process would not think that they are evil conspirators suppressing true <laughs> evidence which, if known, would cause people to disbelieve in them and their theories. Mm. Rather, they think they're just being responsible scientists. Uh, and if they uh, don't talk about anomalous evidence, they would think it's for very good reasons. Uh, somehow or other, they would think something has to be wrong right. with this evidence. And therefore, it's just not responsible to talk about it as if it might possibly be true. So that is now the effect of this is just the same as if it were a diabolical conspiracy. Mm. Uh, so good point. Whether it is or isn't, the result is pretty much the same. And you know, the knowledge filtering takes a, a couple of different forms. One is that contemporary discoveries, discoveries that are being made now and in the recent past, are interpreted in such a way that they fit the dominant paradigm. And I'll give an example of that. Mm. 
in uh, the 1970s, in 1979 to be uh, particular, footprints were discovered at a place called Leitoli in the country of Tanzania in East Africa. And they were reported to the scientific world by a prominent archaeologist, Mary Leakey, uh, who, who was a member of the famous Leakey family. And in her original report, she said these footprints in their form were exactly like modern human footprints. Now, the footprints were found in layers of solidified volcanic ash that were dated using the potassium-argon method as being 3,700,000 years old. Mm. So the footprints were 3,700,000 years old. Mary Leakey said they're exactly like modern human footprints. Now, how did she explain those footprints? Uh, she's, she was a supporter of the now dominant paradigm that humans like us did not exist 3,700,000 years ago. So how did she explain the footprints? Well, she said they must have been made by some kind of ape man who existed at that time who had feet exactly like modern <laughs> human feet. The opposite of hobbits. <laughs> yeah, in that sense. So scientists have the skeletons of the ape men who existed at that time. Uh, they're called Australopithecus. Mm -hmm. you know, they were maybe three or four feet tall, very ape-like in terms of their anatomy. And their foot structure, I mean, foot bones of Australopithecus have been discovered. And their foot was not like that of a modern human being. The foot was more like that of a chimpanzee with very long toes, sort of like short human fingers. And the first toe, the big toe of Australopithecus could move out to the side like a human thumb, like you can extend your thumb out to the side. So the foot of Australopithecus was not like that of a modern human being. Actually, the only creature known to science from skeletal evidence that has a foot exactly like that of a modern human being is a modern human being. <laughs> so... This is just one of the subtle ways in which this knowledge filtering process operates. How did they relate to this later finding then? Did they go back and try to re-explain Mrs. Leakey's find or did they just ignore it? Well, I actually spoke to one of the scientists, Ron Clark, who made uh, some discoveries of Australopithecus foot bones at a place called Sterkfontein in South Africa. Mm. I, I had been in South Africa to give a paper at a scientific conference there. And uh, during uh, the question session following his talk, Ron Clark's talk, I asked him a question, pretty much the same question that you just asked. And he mm. said, well, Probably what happened was that that creature who made the Australi who, who made the footprints found at Leitoli was an Australopithecus 
walking with its feet, with its toes turned under, <laughs> and the first toe pressed tightly against the side of the foot, so that the footprints resembled modern right. human footprints. Right. So <laughs> very speculative. <laughs> but so that that is one form that this knowledge filtering process takes. Mm. I mean, evidence for extreme human antiquity can be staring scientists in the face, but they will just interpret it in such a way that it doesn't contradict their now dominant idea that humans like us first appeared less than 200,000 years ago. Mm. So that's one form the knowledge filtering process takes. The other form that it takes is when, say, somebody like me draws their attention to reports showing an anatomically modern human presence millions of years ago, then they just begin imagining all the ways in which the discovery could possibly be wrong. Right. Without proving that it's wrong, mm. just raising the possibility that it's wrong. And I remember once uh, I was in a situation like that. Actually, I was giving a lecture in Copenhagen, Kribenhaun, in yeah, Denmark. Yeah. Mm. And uh, an archaeologist from uh, the university was present there. And he began raising all kinds of possibilities about, well, the artifact that you're talking about could have slipped in through a fissure from some higher recent level to some very ancient level, and you know, so on and so forth, without actually trying to show that in the particular case there actually was a fissure. Hmm. So I, I told him, well, anything is possible. You can raise all kinds of possibilities. Hmm. Uh, I, like I, I told him, it's possible that you're a holographic projection from <laughs> a UFO from Mars. Whoa, did you say that? Yes, I did. <laughs> nice going. I mean, if, if, yeah. it's, if you just want to raise possibilities, right. I mean, you can raise all kinds of possibilities, but those don't amount to, say, a scientific refutation. Uh, uh, another time, I was giving a lecture about forbidden archaeology at the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow to their anthropology department, their anthropology section. Uh, they had you know, the anthropologists and archaeologists from the Russian Academy of Sciences hold a, a special lecture for me. And then afterwards, one of the anthropologists told me, uh, Mr. Cremo, I haven't read your book, but I'm sure it's everything wrong. in it is a hoax, <laughs> a mistake. Uh, so... And, uh, so all you can say to that is Amen, Hallelujah, because that's what it boils down to. It's just speculation, and I, I say it's religion. It's not science what they these people are following. It's mere religion. Yeah, it's a it's a dogmatic kind of commitment to a certain idea. Yeah. So very doctrinaire, but you know, in in one sense, you know, we all have our commitments and we all have our inclinations and oh, sure. prejudices and we all engage in knowledge filtering of a kind we don't just accept 
everything anyone tells us. Mm. You know, we have standards for what we accept as true or false. Sure. Now the pro so the problem comes where there's a double standard in the application mm. of our standards for judging what is true and what is likely to be false. Very good point. Yeah, for example, you might have a policeman. So he's supposed to enforce the laws of the country. Mm. And if he does it, if the police do it equally for everybody, then you think, okay, they're being fair. They're enforcing the law equally. But if for a certain category of person, they let them off, and then another category of person, they arrest them for the same... Yeah, like we see in America today when it yes. comes to blacks and whites, right? Yes. Mm. If there's a double standard, if you know a, a, a white person is being given the benefit of the doubt, and if a black person moves the wrong way, he's shot down, Yeah. <clears throat> then you have to say there's a double standard going on here, and that's not fair. So the same thing may happen in the scientific world. If you know, we, we need standards for judging what is good evidence and what is bad evidence, but if they are applied in an unequal way, for example, if evidence that conforms to a dominant theory is treated very leniently, but evidence that happens to contradict a dominant theory is, is looked at in a more skeptical way, a way so skeptical that even the evidence that supports the theory would also have to be rejected, mm. then I think you've got a problem. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I would say there is such a problem in the world of science today, and I've documented how that process of knowledge filtration works in terms of archaeology, evidence for extreme human antiquity. But it's something that happens in a lot of other fields of scientific investigation as well, which is, as you say, a possible topic for a future discussion. Yeah, yeah this, this is this is a huge area, and uh, I think, uh, in a way, it's very human that uh, we need new generations uh, with a fresher paradigm who can reform it. So yeah, we'll get back to that. I want the, uh, that we, for the rest of part one now, uh, delve into concrete cases. So I have uh, uh, three or four questions for you about particular cases. And when we come back in part two, we'll delve deeper into maybe we could call it uh, scenario thinking. But uh, my first question then, which is related to what we just addressed, is something as downright as swindle. Because isn't it so that in the accepted evidence, there are cases of direct conscious swindle? I mean then uh, faking of findings. Yeah, well, there are cases like that uh, where uh, we have not only you know some kind of innocent sort of knowledge filtration going on but there are also cases like the piltdown exactly dis discovery mm. which took place in England 
early in the 20th century. You know, there, you know, at that time, you know, scientists still did not have very much evidence for their evolutionary explanation of, of human origins. So uh, some scientists were thinking that uh, the first step in evolution from more ape-like creatures to human creatures was that first the, the brain became bigger and then the rest of the body kind of followed along. So to support that theory, they apparently manufactured a discovery, which was in the textbooks for 40 years or more. Oh, it's finally removed from the textbooks? Well, yes, it's now recognized oh. as uh, a hoax. It took but, a generation. Jesus. But what it shows is that some scientist was involved. It was the hoax was so complex and so perfect mm. that it wasn't recognized for 40 years. Actually, what happened was somebody apparently planted a skull, the top part of a skull, at uh, a place called Piltdown in England, and a an amateur archaeologist named Charles Dawson in 1908 found this skull and then some scientists actually became involved in the discoveries as well and then he found uh, a, a very ape-like jawbone mm. and you know they kind of put the two together and took it as yeah, the, the discovery was about almost two million years old, according to their the current way of dating things. And so they thought, okay, here we've got an intermediate between ancient apes and modern humans. And you've got the human-like skull and the very ape-like jaw. So, you know, they put the two together and they, they, this entered into this, first the primary scientific literature, the original scientific reports of the discovery, and then it gradually entered into the textbooks. Mm. And it was in the textbooks until the 1950s or the 1960s when English scientists started taking a second look at this particular case. And they determined that the jawbone was not that of uh, any type of primitive human. It was just a, a jawbone of an ape that had been very carefully stained with <laughs> minerals to match you know, the kind of minerals that would be found in, in the deposits which it was excavated from. And, you know, and, they, and they have never really identified exactly who the scientist was that did this, but they have shown that it had to have been someone with scientific training, a professional scientist who really understood fossils, who really understood physical anatomy, who, who really had a deep scientific understanding of these things. Mm. So, uh, so there, have, there have been cases in which scientists apparently have been involved in fraud. 
Mm. in archaeology and other areas of science. So that's another thing we have to take into consideration, the possibility of uh, not only fairly innocent knowledge filtration, but actual fraudulent manufacture of evidence. Yeah, and that, uh, in my view, it goes to the same point of being such a true believer in their dogma that they can justify to themselves that, sure, we'll, we'll fake this because uh, there, it's bound to be a missing link and why not just manufacture it and we can get away and, and we, we can kill this debate once and for all. That's uh, to what extent they're willing to go to quote-unquote prove And, and probably they were thinking within a few years the actual evidence will be found. Right, yeah. So we're just anticipating future discoveries. <laughs> yeah. I read also about, uh, I don't know if this was this, I don't think it's the same case, but where they glued on different pieces to make it seem like it was a whole skeleton. I forgot uh, which part it was, but they, they kind of forced together ape and man remnants to make some kind of hypothetical uh, missing link. And, uh, of course, we can't rule out also mere egotistic, like, oh, I want to be a famous discoverer, I, I want this for my own name. Of course, that can also be a factor, which is then more, less ideological-driven, more ego-driven. But, but the sum result is the same. We, we have hoaxes, and the hoaxes influence the current dogma. Pretty sad. Yes. Yeah. Now, what would you say is the single oldest evidence we have for a Homo sapiens sapiens modern man? Well, the, uh, the oldest evidence that I encountered in my reports for human skeletal remains of, of modern human-type beings goes back to a report that was published in a scientific journal called The Geologist. Mm. I think it was in, in the year 1860-something. I forget the exact year. But uh, it was a report of a discovery that was made in Macoupin County in the state of Illinois in the United States, and an excavation was made that went 30 meters below the surface of the ground. And in that excavation was found a fairly complete skeleton of an anatomically modern human. Wow. And above the skeleton was a thick layer of slate rock that was unbroken. And that's an important detail because sometimes when scientists hear of a discovery of a human skeleton in some very ancient layer of rock, you know, they, they will often say, well, it probably slipped down from some higher level, came down through some fissure or crack or earth movement from some higher, more recent level into that very ancient level. So the fact that there was a, a solid, unbroken layer of slate rock extending for many meters in all directions over the skeleton rules out that idea, that very common objection that perhaps it came down from some higher level. Mm. So... 
uh, we did some investigation. We asked the state geology, geology department of Illinois, how old is the layer below the slate rock at that particular location? So we didn't tell them that a human skeleton was found in this layer because sometimes if you make some scientific inquiry and you mention something like that, then they become very suspicious and they don't answer the question. <laughs> yeah. So we just made our inquiry in the form of a neutral inquiry about the age of a particular formation at a particular depth at a particular place. Yeah, clever. And they, they said... Well, that formation is about 300 million years old wow. at that location. So that is the oldest report of human skeletal remains that I uncovered during the research that I did for forbidden archaeology. Now, there are uh, reports of footprints, actually not footprints, but shoe prints that go further back in time than that. Uh, there was a man uh, who was doing some fossil collecting in the state of Utah uh, near a place called Antelope Springs. Mm. Uh, the man's name was William Meister. And when he was breaking open a piece of slate rock. You now he found a shoe print in the piece of rock. And actually my co-author, Dr. Richard Thompson, when he was living, he went and visited Mr. Meister in Utah and he was able to take photographs of the specimen and we were able to determine that the outline of the print was exactly like uh, the imprint of a, a shoe that would be made, say, if you were walking on a beach or something like that. Mm. And there was even a crushed shellfish called a trilobite in the shoe print. And another detail of the print was the heel was worn down. And just like, you know, if you wear shoes for a while and you look at, you know, the back of the heel, you'll see that it's worn down in a particular place. Right. So this shoe print had that feature. Now, this shoe print was found in a formation over 500 million years old. So those are the... Uh, but this shellfish, Trilobit, uh, is that an extreme antique uh, creature? Yes, it's considered a, uh, uh, a fossil that's characteristic of the Cambrian period. It didn't survive after that. So it's considered to be a marker fossil for... Uh, how old, uh, well, you know, most people don't know these periods. How old would you determine this find to be? The other one you mentioned, the skeleton was 300 million. Yeah, that would be from the Carboniferous period. Okay. This would be from the Cambrian period, about 500 million years ago. 500. And, and just to put it in perspective, uh, the dinosaurs, when did they live? The dinosaurs lived uh, between about 300, well, about 250 million years ago and 65 million years ago. Right. So these things would be from before the time of the dinosaurs, even. Wow. So quite ancient discoveries. Oh, yeah.
So those are the there's a human a report of a human anatomically modern human skeleton being found in a Carboniferous formation about 300 million years old, and then there's the footprints that were found in well actually shoe print found in layers of rock about 500 million years old, and then even older than that was a metallic vase. This was reported in Scientific American in the year 1852. Right. Uh, it was a, a metallic vase with silver and laid floral patterns on it. It was reported in Scientific American in the year 1852. And the report said it came from about five meters deep in solid rock at a place called Dorchester, which is one of the parts of the city of Boston right. today. Mm. And we got in touch with geologists of the United States Geological Survey and inquired about the age of the formation at that depth, at that place. And they told us, it's called the Roxbury Conglomerate, and it dates back to the Precambrian period, which means it would be over 600 million years old. And hmm. this vase had been solidly embedded in that formation. So these are some of the older discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints. Right. Right. Uh, of course, when you go to those extreme... Uh, those are the extreme anomalies. Yeah, those are the extreme, and th those are also the findings that the adherents of ancient astronauts, ancient aliens, they, they jump to these things because they kind of exploit the fact that it's not recognized that human beings can be that old. So they then, okay, well, we have a better explanation. It's our space brothers. <laughs> but in the, in our forum, although we do acknowledge the possibility of non-terrestrials having visited us throughout the eons, it's just Occam's razor. Uh, all evidence, we feel, points to the fact that there were ancient and antediluvian advanced civilizations, which this uh, conversation we are having today is a part of a series to to try to support. So, so that's where we are coming from on this. And uh, uh, I, I think it's actually more scientific because you don't need to explain such findings by invoking uh, otherworldly creatures as long as there is a completely plausible hypothesis to explain it sure. <laughs> down to earth. Well, here's, here's, here's my thoughts on that. Sure. In, in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, I didn't offer any explanation for these discoveries. I simply wanted to record the data, mm. record the evidence, mm. and I wanted to separate the question of how to interpret the evidence from presenting the evidence itself. Very good. So, now one thing that the evidence does tend to show is that the current paradigm, the current explanation of human origins is either wrong or not very complete. Mm. Now, as far as any alternative explanation, 
I wanted to put my particular alternative explanation in another book I wrote called Human Devolution, a Vedic mm. alternative to Darwin's theory. Mm. But I was happy that people think about this question and mm. try to come up with their own alternatives, whatever they might be. As you mentioned, uh, some people prefer an extraterrestrial explanation for this evidence. Others have presented to me the idea of time travelers, not necessarily extraterrestrials, but time travel mm. to explain this evidence. Some have tried to account for it in terms of a new theory of evolution uh, in which humans like us evolve far earlier in time. And others, like myself, tend to explain the evidence in terms of humans that existed many, many millions of years ago beyond what's currently accepted. But In an unbroken chain? Uh, not necessarily unbroken. That, that gets into a whole question because I think there have been periodic catastrophes that oh, have sure. Oh, sure. wiped out life in the history of the earth. Even the uh, Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, said human civilizations have risen and fallen again and again many times. H hang on, hang on. Do you mean like completely wiped out without one survivor? I think that could happen. Ah, uh, interesting. And then we and then we start over again. I see. Then we start over again. Right, right. But uh, but it, it's it's a complicated question. Yeah, and it's a philosophical think, one. It's a philosophical and cosmological and even metaphysical question. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, just to give a clue of how I think this may happen is, I accept the idea that we exist in a multi-level cosmos where there are intelligent beings existing at different levels mm. so that even if things are wiped out on our particular level beings higher in the cosmos can reintroduce life forms on our level sort of like cloud computing mm. uh, these days many people they store all their files and pictures and songs and things and programs in the cloud as they call it so that if their device is destroyed, their computer or smartphone or whatever device they have is destroyed, they can download uh, everything again from the cloud, so right. to speak. Right. So without getting deeply into it. And but we get it, yeah. Not wanting to leave your listeners hanging. <laughs> uh, that's, that's sort of the direction that I would go in to explain how there could be periodic devastations that really wipe out. Yeah. life on earth but it gets restarted again it would be like that but, but uh, of course a very popular maybe a more metaphysical explanation uh, is also that the human nature is like a template that different kind of life forms uh, represent the um unavoidable manifestation of their level of consciousness so that wherever you are in in the galaxy if you reach a certain level of consciousness you do find the humanoid form so to speak so that's also a hypothesis out there that's yeah. also in it and and as i said and putting my book forbidden archaeology together i just wanted to put the facts there and save my interpretation 
of those facts for another book. Keep the interpretation separate from the facts. Very good. And and just let everyone have access to the facts that I collected in that mm. book and make whatever use of them they they see fit. And that's another discussion about you know, the different interpretations of the evidence and what it means. Sure. And it just goes to your credit as an unbiased. You know, sure, you have your own stance. Everybody has their own paradigm. But at least you're using the scientific approach where you give people the chance to examine it without you polluting it with, with bias and agenda. And that, that's so respectable. That's, that's, uh, that goes to your credit, Michael. It's really good. And even then, even in presenting the facts, I, I mentioned briefly in the introduction to the book why I was inspired to look for these facts. Yeah, sure. So... Uh, you know, acknowledging that I do have in the background, you can mm. say, some kind of commitments, but I'm open about them so people can take that into account as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, full disclosure that, yeah. that go. I, I wish they did that in mainstream science too. <laughs> now, before we go, uh, take a break here, just one more fact oriented question. What would you say is your best single piece of evidence in the work you find? Well, in, in terms of forbidden archaeology, I think the most significant fact is that there's such a huge amount of this evidence, enough to fill up a 900-page book. To me, that's the most significant thing. But of course, among all those cases, I do have my favorites. And I would say my favorite one is the California gold mine discoveries. And what I was really attracted to is that this case showed two things. It showed actual evidence for a human presence many millions of years ago. And it also showed something about the process of knowledge filtration, how this evidence was removed from active discussion in the scientific world. So this case began in the 19th century when gold was discovered in California, in the mountains of California, the Sierra Nevada mountains. So miners went to get the gold, and to get the gold they were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains at places like Table Mountain mm -hmm. near the town of Sonora, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And inside the tunnels, the miners were finding human bones and human artifacts. And these were found in layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. Hmm. So it belongs to what's called the Eocene period, the early Eocene period. Mm. Now, these discoveries came to the attention of the chief government geologist of California, a man named Dr. J.D. Whitney. He was a Harvard University-educated geologist. Mm. So he went out and visited the sites. He collected artifacts. He did his own investigations. He collected reports from others. And he published a massive study of these. His report was published by Harvard University 
in the year 1880. Mm. And he was completely convinced that these were genuine discoveries of human bones and human artifacts showing a very ancient human presence. Mm. But these discoveries are not mentioned in today's textbooks because of the process of knowledge filtration. Mm. And there was an anthropologist named William Holmes who worked for the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. And he was a very prominent scientist and he was at the, the center of the scientific world, whereas Dr. Whitney out in California was more on the periphery. Mm. So using his position of power and influence, uh, Dr. Holmes wrote, if Dr. Whitney had been aware of the theory of human evolution, he would not have come to the conclusions that he published. <laughs> Right. In other words, he should have known that those discoveries could not possibly be true because yeah. according to the theory of evolution, you know, humans didn't exist at that time. Right. Even their ape-man-like ancestors didn't exist at that time. Right. So he just should have known these things could not possibly be true. Yeah. So what happened was is that these discoveries were simply forgotten. And I did some investigations and I found out about them. And I also visited the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley where they have some of the artifacts from the California gold mines. They're not kept in the museum itself. They're kept in a storage building a few miles from the museum. But I did get in to see them. I was able to study and photograph. Wow, cool. Of course, these things aren't displayed to the public. And as I said, the scientists who are controlling these things, they don't think they're hiding true evidence, which if people would know about would cause them to disbelieve in their theories. They just think something's got to be wrong with this evidence. It can't possibly be true. And this is the right place for it behind closed doors. Hmm. So, and, and, you know, I also went into the mountains of California and I was able to find some of the old gold mining tunnels where these objects were originally discovered. So, I mean, one of the hopes that I have in doing this kind of work is that somebody in the scientific world with an open mind will try to reopen this case. Right. And, and put it on the map, so to speak. Put it on the map, so to speak. Mm. You know, that, that's what I hope one of my contributions will eventually be. But I, I really like this particular case. Of course, as I said, it's not that just one particular case is significant. To me, the most significant thing is there's a lot of cases like this. If there were just one or two, then you might be able to overlook it and say, okay, you got one or two anomalies, fine. There, there's always some mysterious cases. You know, if, if this kind of knowledge filtration just happened once or twice, maybe it wouldn't be so significant. But 
I think what I've tried to show is that we're not just talking about one or two cases like this. Mm. We're talking about many of them that have gone on over the past couple of centuries. And even today, the same sort of thing is going on. Right, right. And that just goes to show that the saying, it only takes one black sheep to prove that not all sheep are white, is actually not right. It's such a dogmatic wall that you, you need uh, perhaps twice as many black sheep to, to prove that, that not all sheep are white. And even then, you know, it's a hard upwards battle. But we do appreciate your good work here. And I just dawned upon me that you and Dr. Thompson have actually done field research too, and not just desk job where you're collecting cases others are fine but you actually examine stuff and and uh, uh, yeah research stuff yeah part of part of my work is archival you know tracking down rare reports in many different languages but another part is actually visiting museum collections getting access to the artifacts Mm. looking at them and going out and trying to relocate the original places where they were found. Uh, so, yes, there are many different aspects to the kind of work that I do. Right, right. And to our listeners of uh, a certain other forum program we had, you will notice that Sonora is once more put on the map <laughs> because that place popped up in another program we had with uh, regarding something else. So that's fun. Yeah, now, uh, I think we should take a break now. And when we come back, we'll really delve into the interesting areas of this, this huge uh, field. So stay tuned, people. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 